afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. It's Wednesday, July 28th. I'm your host, Marty Bennett. And over the next 30 minutes, we're going to be taking a look at three questions we've been hearing from international educators over the past few days. Uh, this will be our last uh, pod, uh, midweek roundup for July. Uh, we'll be taking a week off next Wednesday. Uh, we'll be on vacation uh, with family, uh, but we'll be returning in the second week of August uh, for uh, resumption and for our 150th midweek roundup. So we're looking forward to that edition in early August. So thank you for all joining me today. Uh, we're going to be answering three questions, as I mentioned, uh, that we've been hearing this past week. Uh, first up, how can the U.S. continue to attract the best talent from around the world? Uh, second, why does the Education USA Forum matter? And we found out about that in detail this week. And finally, how should colleges deal with reopening, with changing guidance uh, almost daily coming out as to what's, what's to be expected this fall? So we'll take a look at those three questions uh, in the course of the next 30 minutes. For those that are new to the Roundup, uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, this is our way through our podcast, uh, through all the major podcast providers, to uh, hear our thoughts on how these questions of the day will impact what we do in international education. Uh, those that are watching live on Facebook, obviously, thanks for taking the time out. Uh, also, those who watch on repeat, either on our Facebook page or our YouTube channel for SMIE Consulting. Thanks for being a part of our community. Uh, for those that uh, are new to the Roundup, again, we take the stories that we deal in depth with here on the Roundup from our newsletter that comes out on Mondays at 9 a.m. Eastern. And if you want to subscribe to that, you go to smieconsulting.org slash subscribe, see an archive of the past editions, as well as a subscribe button to uh, get on our mailing list for that. I'm putting the link to all the stories we cover, including the news, most recent newsletter, in the comments section on our Facebook page if you'd like to go more in-depth into any, any of the pieces that we're covering today. So let's get right to that first one. How can the U.S. continue to attract the best talent? And obviously, this is a question that those who have been in international education for more than a minute certainly realize that one of, uh, if, if not themselves, have been influenced by international education, have had the opportunity to interact with students in their college days from around the world, uh, seeing the talent that comes to the United States, either for study or for employment or a combination of both. Uh, I'm a product of an, I'm an immigrant to the United States. Uh, when I was five years old, our family moved from the UK to the US. Uh, my father was on an L2, L1 visa, an intracompany transfer, and I was an L2 in kindergarten and first grade, an intracompany transfer dependent. So we are products of the American dream, the immigrant dream that brought uh, my family to the United States for initially for employment for my dad, uh, but certainly has led to our staying here, becoming permanent residents and eventually citizens of the United States and con uh, contributing members of society here. Uh, but the, this has been a dream. Immigrants were a nation of immigrants here in the United States uh, since our earliest days. Uh, and that's, uh, that's, that's been regularly a part of uh, our, uh, our nation's history in terms of people coming to the United States for a better opportunity. 
uh, for uh, their families, for themselves, and certainly that message resonates in higher education in particular when uh, we admit students from around the globe who turn into these amazing talents uh, for not only the United States if they decide to stay, but also for their home countries when they uh, decide to return and uh, uh, contribute back to their home countries in various ways, economically, politically, socially. And that's something that uh, I, we can be very proud of in U.S. Uh, in the United States and in particular higher education and the role that we play in facilitating those dreams uh, and realizing those dreams for those, uh, those overseas individuals who choose to come and study at our campuses. But uh, maintaining that, uh, we can all admit that the last uh, four years have been a pretty rocky road uh, with the previous administration's policies and in general anti-immigrant rhetoric. Uh, there, on the whole, that tarnished the United States' image abroad in terms of uh, our openness, our friendliness to those that are wished to come to the United States. and. Even though the target, targets of much of the uh, administration's uh, attacks were those that were coming to for nefarious means or uh, were coming to commit crimes and uh, uh, not bring the best elements into our country, uh, certainly the impact was much broader uh, than uh, than just those in, in intended audiences, uh, for at least on face value. But uh, interesting article coming out of uh, issues in science and technology about attracting and keeping the best and brightest. Uh, that uh, article talks about uh, the role of America, the American, sci American scientific enterprise and uh, our, how we've been losing competitive uh, advantage in the, in the global market, uh, but immigrants that have come to the United States have helped to, uh, help to, to bolster the United States in, in, in science and technology in particular, at a time when the interest from domestic students to pursue STEM fields in particular has not been very high. Uh, and certainly not high enough to sustain itself without uh, having uh, international students uh, coming in in those fields to keep the, keep the engine moving of scientific and innovation and entrepreneurship and investment, uh, uh, human capital and otherwise in infrastructure, uh, science and research infrastructure here in the United States. Uh, clearly, uh, the, the legacy Immigrant legacy has uh, impacted all parts of uh, U.S. society in positive ways, and uh, particularly in science and technology, you, you hear this uh, over and over again. And this is something that uh, the article quotes that I think is very relevant for international educators to know. Today, and the quote is, today while immigrants make up 18% of the U.S. workforce, they have won 39% of the country's Nobel Prizes in science, comprise over 40% of STEM PhD graduates, and 28% of the science and engineering faculty in U.S. universities, and produce 28% of the nation's high-quality patents. Immigrants have founded more than 50% of the nation of the billion-dollar startup companies in the United States. So that's a, that's a nice chunk uh, to take away in terms of justification for how significant a role immigrants play in our uh, economic engine, in terms of our growth as a country, science and technology. So very, very, very heartened by seeing that kind of an article. Now, another piece uh, that uh, is also, uh, also speaks to one of the countries that is a big driver in terms of uh, U.S. Interest, uh, interest in the United States for science and technology uh, is uh, an, an Indian American uh, coming from uh, Dr. Sudeep Parikh. Um, 
Uh, he's CEO of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Uh, he talks about his immigrant experience, that his, uh, he is the product of special expert visas and family migration uh, in, into the United States. Uh, he talks about his, his family's background uh, that, uh, uh, that allowed his family to, to come to, the, to India, his parents in particular, to come from India to the United States. Uh, and that, uh, that their, the parents, their parents believe, his parents believe in the vision of the U.S. as a shining city on a hill. And that's, uh, that language certainly resonates with a lot of immigrants that have come to the U.S. And in, in addition to the Statue of Liberty and all the, and all the various uh, pieces of the American experience that uh, we, we, we immigrants identify with. So he talks through um, the importance of immigrants in the scientific community and how, uh, as an Indian American, he, is, uh, he, he certainly is all over um, keeping this front and center to be a beacon, he calls it, uh, for science and tech talent in the world uh, that people are drawn to, from overseas to the United States and, and cannot be more supportive of that ideal. Uh, it's at the heart of who we are as a country uh, in terms of allowing the, uh, those that have talents that wish to be here to use them for uh, uh, to improve their own lot but also the lot of a country. I think uh, contributing to our economy all our, our values that most uh, Americans would embrace wholeheartedly uh, because of the, the value that they bring to the country and making us all better for it, uh, and better people, better, uh, uh, better technology, better tools that we have at our, at our, uh, at our fingertips that help us uh, improve our, our lives and the lives of our families and our communities. So uh, these are the kinds of things, particularly from immigrant families, and uh, we, that we, we embrace wholeheartedly. And there are, um, in terms of the impact of this, uh, I th certainly think you, f you hear and see signs from the current administration that is much more open to uh, easing those pathways and to clearing the obstacles that have been placed in their way over the past four years, certainly, to improve the, uh, their chances. Uh, we've seen this with refugee caps being restored, with in interest in H-1B uh, caps being raised, uh, and those types of things that the, the Biden administration is doing. And on the international ed side, we're also seeing some movement that way. And that will dovetail nicely with our next topic, is why does the Education USA Forum matter? That's our second question of the week. And as we talk about this, uh, those who know me well, uh, and many of my Education USA colleagues uh, over the past uh, 28 years that I've been involved in international education uh, can attest, uh, you, uh, the Education USA network uh, of advisors, REACTS, are at the heart and soul of what I believe are essential components of uh, an international education strategy on any college campus uh, that is serious about bringing students in from overseas and internationalizing their campuses. So Education USA, very near and dear to my heart, and the Education USA Forum, I had the pleasure of being involved in the production of the first one back in uh, 2010 when we held it in a hotel uh, in, in Washington, D.C. before uh, having to expand to larger facilities. Uh, it's really uh, seeing it develop over the last 11 years now uh, to, into something that is 
uh, one of one of the most important uh, international ed conferences for U.S. educators, international educators that you can attend. Uh, in terms of the global exposure you have, yes, NAFSA is bigger. NAFSA has 10,000 people from all over the world, but so does EdUSA Forum in a much more concentrated manner, and I think um, a much more focused manner, and a much more, uh, I think, intentional uh, and user-friendly format uh, for interactions uh, that uh, you don't necessarily get at a much larger event. But the EdUSA Forum this this year, obviously, it's been virtual the last two years. Uh, and uh, this year was uh, there may, may have been hopes to have it in person, but uh, the uh, cooler heads prevailed, and uh, we and the decision was made to have it uh, virtual. Uh, I've not worked for Education USA since 2014 when I uh, left to start SMIE Consulting, uh, and that's uh, but they've always been a part of uh, who I am as an international educator. And the people that attend this event, particularly those that are in the advisor and REACT roles uh, for Education USA, are some of the most uh, amazing professionals I've seen. Uh, some of the circumstances they've had to work in are just um, just boggle the mind sometimes when you think about it. Uh, and the hardest working and perhaps most underpaid, particularly in the advising circles, uh, under underpaid staff that you that you, that deserve so much more than their um, current. Employers, uh, in whatever format they are, are able to provide. But the the work that they do is essential uh, in terms of connecting students with uh, U.S. institutions uh, for higher ed opportunities. They help uh, throughout the enrollment process. And I know uh, we talked um, in the past about Education USA. Uh, in 2013, 2014, uh, we launched Your Five Steps to U.S. Study and how important that was in helping to simplify uh, the U.S. higher education admissions process, uh, which we all know is the most complex in the world. Having to and to be able to market that effectively, uh, certainly Education USA in the last seven, eight years has done that to great effect. And it's still uh, the central component of their of their website and their messaging uh, for prospective students from around the world. And um, the forum itself has always been a place where uh, the, the uh, update, up news updates from the field uh, are anxiously awaited by attendees on the higher ed side. Uh, and for many years now, uh, the Education USA Global Guide, which we also launched back in, I think, 2011, uh, was, uh, is seen as, a, as next to Open Doors, probably the most relevant and probably most actionable piece or research document that you can have as an international admissions professional in our field that can give you the, the on-the-ground intelligence from the regions and the major country, sending countries uh, tips and tricks for social media and uh, how to leverage those digital tools to reach student audiences in key markets. It's just a fab fabulous tool and it's out again uh, for 2021 uh, as was released this week. But uh, we'll talk. I'm going to be dropping links to all the major stories related to the EdUSA Forum and some of the products that they released, the, the uh, Global Guide as well, dropping the links in the comments section for those who aren't attending who would like to get it. But uh, one of the things I feel uh, is this Education USA Forum is so important is it marks the first one since the inauguration of the Biden administration and gives, the, uh, gives attendees the opportunity to really start talking about moving forward uh, in a positive direction uh, and having support from the administration to uh, 
adopt policies, frankly, that international educators in the U.S. have talked about for decades, about having uh, a national policy for international education. And it's something that, frankly, hasn't, uh, hasn't ever existed. Uh, the last time this was even thought about uh, or acted on in any uh, even nominal way was back in 2000, in, the, in April of 2000, in the last year of the, of the Clinton administration, when uh, there was a push to uh, uh, have all federal go government agencies uh, work through the vice president to craft an international education policy. Never happened. Uh, and it, was, it was just launched in, during an election year when uh, there was too much other noise going on at the time, uh, issues in the administration, and for uh, for that to even ever get the traction it needed uh, to affect some real change. The, if, it, if the election in 2000 had gone differently and Al Gore, who was charged with this initiative uh, by President Clinton, uh, if he had been elected, uh, would have, might have been a different story uh, as it would have been part of his legacy uh, to, in terms of programs that would carry over from the Clinton administration to, uh, to his. Uh, that didn't happen. The election didn't go that way. Uh, then 9-11 happened, and certainly international ed was in a period of recovery for uh, a good three or four years before uh, it rebounded to its current levels uh, pre-COVID and or pre-Trump even. And this is something that this particular uh, event, uh, the EdUSA Forum, was, was chosen, opening day on Monday this week, was chosen as the time to release a joint statement. And this joint statement is something that I think is, is pretty special. Uh, it's a joint statement that reflects uh, the priorities uh, of um, uh, given by uh, Secretary Blinken, uh, the uh, current Secretary of State, who did it in uh, as a joint statement with Secretary Mendoza of Education, uh, and with the support of Commerce and Homeland Security, though they weren't part of any video messages or did anything specific to say about this uh, as part of the joint statement. They're certainly signing on to it, obviously as the main uh, areas of government that have direct influence over international education matters uh, with regard to uh, visa policy and all that, uh, immigration benefits, that type of thing. But the uh, Secretary Blinken's uh, comments in his video statement, and we'll post the link to that as well, make reference to the, an international education being considered by the Biden administration a foreign policy imperative. And that's language that we've not heard before. Uh, certainly in the, in the recent, uh, probably the past 10, 15 years, that has never been part of the language that uh, uh, the State Department certainly has used. And this, this foreign policy imperative uh, makes, uh, gives it a weight that we uh, haven't seen in quite a long time. Now, uh, this is, uh, in this tasking, this uh, joint statement, and the joint statement is actually uh, it's called a renewed U.S. commitment to international education, re-engaging the world to make the U.S. stronger at home. And it's, uh, it goes into all the various benefits and policy and types of things, the, what we were just talking about, the immigrant experience and the value of overseas uh, students and, and scholars coming to the United States and uh, enriching our campuses, uh, enriching our communities that they live in, all of that. So uh, the, 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 obviously the, it's short on, on, on specifics, but uh, this joint statement covers uh, roughly 10 areas that uh, are, are of focus or shall be of focus as this policy is fleshed out. Uh, that 
there's because I mean there's acknowledgement for the first time in from a U.S. government perspective I think from State Department perspective that we're in a, in a competitive world and this is the perspective I talk about all the time with my six P's of strategic international enrollment management having that global perspective and State Department not surprisingly has that global perspective but this is the first time I've heard the language used that says hey we're in a competitive race for talent in the world and we're being beaten in certain areas by countries who have much more uh, wide open uh, immigration systems, much more streamlined pathways for uh, from study to work to, to uh, residency and those are things that we can do a much better job of articulating in an, with an international education policy. So the first, the first step here is uh, or the first bullet that their, their focus is, will be on is to participate in a coordinated national approach to international education including study in the U.S. by international students, researchers, and scholars, study abroad for Americans, international research collaboration, and the internationalization of U.S. campuses and classrooms, which is, wow, that's international education right there, uh, as to uh, have a coordinated national approach to this. How this gets done, that's the devil's in the details, and we'll talk more about that in, in future episodes. Second, emphasize the U.S. government's commitment to support key facets of international education in partnerships with U.S. higher education institutions, schools, state and local governments, non-governmental entities, business community, and other stakeholders. Third, incorporate a strong focus on international education as part of the nation's recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic in order to build back better at home. Build back better is a very important uh, catchphrase in the Biden campaign and now in the administration to maintain U.S. global leadership and promote equitable access to the benefits of international ed. Fourth, welcome international students, researchers, and scholars and educators to the U.S. in a safe and secure manner and encourage a diversity of participants, disciplines, and types of authorized schools and higher education institutions where they can choose to study, teach, and contribute to research. That, though, other than the welcoming part uh, and safe and secure part, that's not really anything new. That's kind of a fluff line as far as I'm concerned. Fifth, encourage U.S. students, researchers, and scholars, and educators who reflect the diversity of the U.S. to pursue overseas study, obviously internships, research, and other international experiences. Great to see that. Uh, sixth, recognize the significant benefits that international students, scholars, researchers, and exchange alumni contribute to research, innovation, and economic development and job opportunities in the U.S. Promote expanded access, number seven, to international education, including through the use of technology where in-person experiences are not feasible to connect U.S. students, researchers, scholars, and educators with their peers abroad. Implement eighth, our eighth, yeah, eighth, implement policies, procedures, and protocols so as to facilitate international education and authorize practical experiences while, and that's talking about OPT, uh, while promoting uh, program integrity and protecting national security clearly communicate policy guidance and implement fair, efficient, transparent support processes while maintaining national security, upholding the law. Nine, leverage existing international ed programs and resources to create new opportunities to broaden access. And 10th, foster increased cooperation among the federal government 
private sector and education institutions so as to maintain the integrity of federally funded and protected intellectual property and research endeavors from undue foreign influence and unlawful acquisition. So uh, that addresses some of the key elements that Trump went overboard, Trump administration went overboard with their China initiative that we see kind of dying out on, dying out here in the U.S. But um, covering a lot of ground, obviously, uh, key elements in there are, are focused on inbound uh, students and scholars and researchers and such, but we don't have a lot of details yet as to what that's going to mean. Uh, obviously, there are all the stakeholders uh, on outside of government are certainly excited about this as and see it as a positive first step. And there's some great articles from Inside Higher Ed, from Forbes, from uh, Chronicle, from Pi News, uh, from uh, a number of different outlets, Science Magazine, uh, talking about uh, talking about some of the uh, some of the implications of this. So uh, we'll we'll talk about what this what this is going to mean, and NASA certainly is uh, probably going to be a key uh, participant in this uh, in this charge uh, to to get uh, uh, to get uh, these uh, whatever policy procedure changes uh, implemented uh, from at least a rallying uh, support for those. So we're going to see, I think, some really important next steps. Uh, that'll be coming down the pike, and I really see uh, this as a first step. But that's why the Edu Education USA Forum matters, because uh, it is the place where these kinds of announcements happen and can be seen as the kickoff for this new campaign for an international education strategy for our country. So, great first step. Miles to go before we sleep, but uh, as those who know me well, um, I grew up in Missouri, so you still got to show me uh, the details. Uh, show me uh, how this will work and what the policy initiatives will be, what's, uh, what's doable through uh, administrative and regulatory changes, and what will require larger acts of Congress. Uh, some of the things we've talked about here on the Roundup, like uh, making F1 a dual intent status that would eliminate the 214B requirement for, uh, for, for F1 students applying for visas. Uh, and other things like that, expanding access to uh, to uh, to to H-1B after graduation, making that, that program more seamless, giving uh, uh, doctorate or giving doctorates, doctoral students, doctoral graduates, uh, automatic green cards. All of those are, are are steps that can be taken and have been proposed, frankly, and uh, should be acknowledged in initial proposals uh, that we talked about last week that the Biden administration launched in January did include um, the PhDs for STEM, uh, STEM international graduates, uh, giving green cards to them as well as proposing that dual intent for F1s. So that's, uh, that's a, their immigration bill that may is going to get cannibalized if it ever gets to, to a floor vote. But certainly, uh, this there are, there are pieces that we would like as international educators that at least they're taking a good look at addressing. So good signs coming out of the forum this week. Obviously, great to reconnect with all the, all the colleagues that I've had great experiences with. And I know many of my international ed friends on the U.S. side uh, who have interacted with EdUSA. Uh, certainly, uh, that uh, the, they share my thoughts in that in that regard. So let's move on to that final question of the day: How should colleges deal with reopening? Uh, we've seen uh, the full range of uh, institutional stories over the last uh, couple of months as 
uh, going back to when Rutgers first said they're going to require vaccines uh, to uh, to only FDA vaccines, and now that policy's changed and morphed a bit. To colleges that have uh, been trying to encourage that our current students to get vaccinated before they return, and having drives on campus, and even giving incentives out there. And we well, well we dropped a story in, in uh, this week's edition of the of our newsletter uh, that for about Central Michigan University that's uh, doing uh, in, uh, full tuition scholarships, uh, doing uh, hundreds of gift cards that they're giving away to students who show uh, that they've been vaccinated. Uh, so there are a lot of different ways that's going. There's a, there's an interesting uh, webinar coming up on, um, let's see, this one is going to be August 5th, and that's with uh, IIE and IDP Connect. Uh, it's called Reopening International Education, Student and Institutional Perspectives, and I think that's always good, a uh, good perspective to have when you look at how universities are perceiving the issues and how uh, international students are perceiving those that aren't here yet, how, are, how they're perceiving those issues from the different perspectives. So I think that's going to be some uh, inf useful information to, to kind of uh, see what, how things are shaking out. Um, how, where the disconnects may or may not be between uh, incoming students and institutions. Uh, we've seen a story just out today uh, that Cal, the Cal State system is going to be requiring vaccines for all their student staff and faculty uh, for the upcoming uh, academic year. Um, and the Chronicle's running list of campuses that are requiring, uh, in requiring vaccinations has now hit 607, broke the 600 barrier. Uh, that's the first time that's happened. Uh, uh, it's been, it had been in the 500s for probably going on two months, uh, but now that now over 600 uh, campuses, and that's, and that's still not uh, not nearly what it probably uh, will be in the end, or could be in the end, but uh, probably lower than what I think many many colleges, uh, state institutions in particular, if they're in. Uh, red states, uh, they may be prohibited from doing that, uh, from requiring vaccines either by their legislatures or governors have uh, made proclamations that way. We've seen a federal court uphold Indiana University's requirement that in order to be on campus, you need to have a vaccine, whether faculty, staff, or employee. That was challenged in court, and uh, the uh, judge, uh, citing pub uh, legitimate public health concerns, uh, gave uh, uh, ordered made his decision in favor of Indiana U. So will other colleges uh, feel emboldened by that? Uh, there are a couple of agencies in Illinois, another Midwestern state that uh, uh, oversee higher education, Illinois Board of Higher Ed and the Illinois Community College Board that are recommending colleges and universities uh, require the vaccine ahead of the fall term um, and their governor uh, may, may, there's no legislation pending that would certainly require it, uh, but the, they would probably feel uh, emboldened to do so. Uh, some institutions, University of Illinois, Northwestern and DePaul have already uh, said they're going to be mandating vaccines. So a wide range of uh, where institutions are coming down on this issue and certainly uh, miles to go before we sleep on this one. But a lot of uh, positives this week and we're really excited about what uh, with this new international ed proposal or strategy that's coming out uh, from the federal government. Uh, if, it, if it does take flight, uh, certainly there's going to be a lot, a lot of folks in international ed circles here in the U.S. that are, are going to be excited about that opportunity and what it's going to mean for them as they go out to recruit students to come uh, and what, the, how positive a, a change that will be over what we've experienced the last four years. 
So that's all we have for the roundup this week. I appreciate you taking the time to uh, join us either live or on re repeat. And those that are downloading the podcast, thanks for making us a part of your listening uh, enjoyment this past week and all weeks. So until next time, and again, we'll be taking the week off next uh, Wednesday uh, in August, first week of August, but we'll be back the second week of August with our uh, 150th episode of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. So until next time, have a great day.